Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, Gospel of John, and chapter 12. Uh, ben read, beginning in chapter 11, verse 45, I want to now complete the reading of this section that we'll be looking at this morning. So we'll read verses 20 through 36 of John chapter 12. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. That as your word is opened up now, that you would come, that you would reveal truth to us, to our hearts, to our spirits in wonderful and powerful ways, ways that prove to be transformative in our lives. Please come by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This Sunday and next Sunday will be in chapter 12, and then the plan is actually to take a break from our series in John for the summer, and then we'll return back uh, in the fall in chapter 13. But right now, we're nearing the end of the public ministry of Jesus, coming to a close here in chapter 12. But I want to remind you of something that we talked about back in chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But it was in the first chapter, the latter half of John chapter 1, that Jesus calls His first disciples. And as they are encountering Him, they make various professions of faith in Jesus. And one of them comes in verse 49 of John 1 from the lips of Nathanael. Nathanael said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. Now, why did Nathanael say that second bit, that you're the King of Israel? There was something informing his expectation uh, and that of the other disciples. If you were a Jew in Jesus' day, there were certain promises that you were holding on to, uh, certain promises that were made before your generation about a coming king uh, who would rule over God's people, Israel. And the seed of that hope, the seed of that promise, is contained in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
There in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God entered into a covenant with King David, the king over Israel. And I'll just read two verses from 2 Samuel 7 there where God makes this covenant with David. The Lord said to him in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Of all the promises that God made in the Old Testament to his people Israel, for example, the coming seed of the woman who would come and crush Satan's head, of the coming seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations and deliverance for the nations. It's, it's this promise to David that sort of takes the cake, as it were, that gets the most coverage, the most attention in subsequent books of the Old Testament. In the Psalms and in the prophets, at many points we pick up on this theme of anticipation and expectation that there is this coming seed of David, this coming child of the king, this coming one who will reign on his father's throne forever, and his kingdom is going to be so much greater than his father's kingdom. His throne is going to be established forever. He's, he's going to remain forever. He's not going to pass off the scene just like King David did and King Solomon did. No, this son that's to come, his throne will be established forever, and he will rule over Israel and over God's people forever and ever. And so if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you're waiting, you're anticipating, you're praying. Perhaps you're wondering, could it be that God is going to fulfill this promise in our generation or maybe in our children's generation? And perhaps you prayed that as a believing Israelite. Oh, Lord, bring that promised seed, that promised son of David, that king of Israel. Now do it in my lifetime. I want to live to see my children grow up under the reign of the son of David who is to come. And perhaps at this time, as there have been 400 years of silence, God has not spoken to Israel. Over the course of a few centuries now, uh, they're under the rule of the Romans. Perhaps more than ever, they're groaning with expectation for this coming one, for this fulfillment of the great promise that was made to their father David. And now, in John chapter 12, we get this most astounding revelation. Actually, two astounding revelations that were given in John chapter 12. Jesus' public ministry is coming to a close, and indeed His life is coming to a close. Uh, we, we read we're six days out at the start of chapter 12 from His death, and Jesus is now coming into Judea. He's coming into Jerusalem. There are two things revealed in chapter 12 that are utterly astounding to the Jews who are present there, who are there at the Passover feast. Jews from throughout the empire have descended upon Jerusalem, and Jesus is now coming. There are two great revelations that are given. The first is that this longed-for king, the long-anticipated son of David, the king of Israel, has come. The fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy and expectation is here. The king has come. And this is an astounding revelation to those who look on, to those Jews who are present. The only thing more astounding than this revelation is perhaps the second major revelation that is made in this chapter. The king has come, but what is then revealed is that the king must die. The king of Israel, the long-expected son of David, the one who is supposed to be established on the throne forever and rule over God's people forever, it's revealed in John chapter 12 with total clarity, certainly more clarity than we've had up to this point in John's gospel. It's revealed in John chapter 12 that this king has come, but more than that, this king must die. And so this morning, I'd like us to open up this passage, John chapter 12, up to verse 36, under these two main headings. The king has come, and the king must die. First of all, it's revealed that the king has come. Now, in John chapter 6, you might remember, uh, there Jesus feeds the 5,000, 
And at the conclusion of that great and mighty miracle, we read in verses 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. So there in John 6, on the heels of this great and awesome miracle, the crowds want to take Him by force. They want to make Him king over Israel. And Jesus resists them. He actually withdraws from them. He goes away to the mountain to pray. We have a different scene now in John chapter 12. Now again, it's on the heels of a great miracle, the raising of Lazarus. In fact, those who were there at the tomb are apparently following Jesus. And uh, uh, this great, mighty demonstration of the glory of the Son, this great demonstration of power has happened, and the crowds are following Jesus, and they want to acknowledge Him as King. But now here in chapter 12, Jesus doesn't seem to mind at all. He doesn't withdraw from them or resist. Uh, They're ascribing to Him this title, King of Israel. In fact, He seems to embrace the spotlight in chapter 12. So we read John 12, looking on at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. In those days, those palm branches would have been a symbol of victory and triumph. That's why we often refer to this scene as the triumphal entry. The king is coming in, and the the scene is is like a king coming in after a great battle, and palm branches would be laid down uh, as he processes through the city. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! That means salvation or save. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Similar scenario to John 6, on the heels of a great miracle and you have an excited crowd once again acknowledging Jesus as the King. But what's strange, what's interesting is that He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't withdraw from them. He doesn't resist uh, this appellation of king. In fact, He Himself feeds the narrative in His own way by deliberately fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Israel's king, a prophecy that was given in Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted for us in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey. Like, Jesus, by His own initiative, wasn't brought to Him. He goes, He finds a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, and now here's the quote from Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion. That's an expression used in the prophets often to refer to Israel, the daughter of Zion. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Similar scenario in John 12, but a very different take than what we have in John 6. There Jesus resists the title of king. Here He's embracing the spotlight, not just by the crowds giving it to Him. He Himself is deliberately taking action to fulfill a prophecy that was given specifically about the coming of Israel's king. Now, what question should we be asking ourselves, Bible people? Why? Now in John 12, does Jesus take a different posture than the posture He took in John chapter 6? Jesus doesn't want to take the throne, take the title King of Israel in John 6, but now in John 12, He does. And I'm asking the question, why? I think there are two main reasons, two main reasons why Jesus here in John 12 is embracing the spotlight and embracing the title of King of Israel and he doesn't in John 6. Uh, the first is that in John 6, Jesus' hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. We've seen this several times in this series in the Gospel of John, right? Jesus talking about His coming hour. The Father and the Son have this plan, and it involves the Son of God going to the cross and dying and rising again. Jesus' fateful hour where this great act of atonement is going to take place. Well, the hour had not yet come in John 6. But here in John 12, the hour has come. Jesus is now moving toward the cross, and this great cosmic work of atonement is going to be accomplished just in a few short days. And for that reason now, Jesus is willing to take the title King of Israel to Himself. What's more than that, and this is the second reason, is that back in John 6, 
on the heels of that particular miracle, in the presence of that particular crowd, Jesus taking the throne at that point, taking the title King of Israel, would have been completely and totally misunderstood. Remember, those are excited revolutionaries. They want to come and seize Him and make Him king. And remember, this is not a crowd of people filled with faith. These are people who have just had their bellies filled with bread, and they are the ones that are pursuing the bread that perishes. And here we have Jesus. He could give us bread forever, an endless supply of bread, and He can come and be our king, and He can give us prosperity for the rest of our lives. And when that's the posture given towards Jesus, and He's not able to interpret for Himself what it means that He's the king, He resists them. He withdraws. But here in John 12, the scene is very different. His hour has come. He's coming into Jerusalem. There's already a warrant out for His arrest. He is intentionally giving Himself up, and He is going to interpret exactly what it means that He is the King of Israel, that He's not going to satisfy the expectations of the fervid crowds who wish to make Him king. No, He's going to interpret precisely what it means that He's the king, and He will define the terms of His rule. That is why Jesus is now willing to assert Himself as the king. His hour is here, and He will define for us His pathway to the throne. So the king has come. The king of Israel is here. The long-awaited son of David has come. You remember Nathanael's words in John 1, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Twelve chapters ago, now those words are going to be affirmed in climactic fashion here at the close of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in fact, the crowds who are gathered say almost the exact same thing Nathanael said twelve chapters ago. Uh, They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus responds by fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9.9, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The king of Israel has come. Now, I want you to notice at this point, after verse 15, 16, John, the writer of this gospel, uh, makes a subtle shift here and subtly makes a very important point that actually has been emphasized up to this point in John's gospel, and that is this. Jesus, the coming king, does not come merely as the king of Israel. He is the king of the whole world. It's subtle, but I'm sure it's here in John chapter 12. I want you to see it here. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now, I don't know precisely what the Pharisees mean when they say that. They're talking to one another. Obviously, they're concerned after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Here's incontrovertible proof that this guy is sent from God. People are going to go after him, and we're going to lose our place. They say, look, you're gaining nothing. We're not stopping this guy. Look, the world has gone after him. And now, they could mean by that when they say the world has gone after him. They could be referring to their little Jewish world, like everybody we know, everybody that's been coming to synagogue lately. They're all going after Jesus, everyone in our world is going after Jesus. They could mean, and I suspect this is their meaning, it's the Passover time, they're in Jerusalem, and at the Passover, Jews from all over the empire would descend upon Jerusalem, from all the other nations in the empire. They'd come back, and they'd be there for the feast. And the Pharisees are appreciating that now diaspora Jews, not just the ones in the immediate locale, but people who have been spread throughout the empire, they're coming back, and they're hearing about who Jesus is and what He's done, and they too are following after Jesus. Look, the whole world has gone after Him. Well, whatever the Pharisees' meaning is, John, the writer of this gospel, is going to use their words to advance his own narrative. And that is that Jesus' rule will not be limited to the Jews only, but will extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. Remember, John chooses what material he uses. He doesn't invent facts, but he's choosing which facts and which sayings, which statements, conversations he's going to include and exclude. And he includes right here, after all this stuff about Jesus being the king of Israel, 
He includes this statement from the Pharisees. The whole world is going after him. And immediately after including that statement from the Pharisees, what do we read in verse 20? Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. What are the Greeks doing here? You've been with us in this series for 12 chapters. Has there been a single reference to Greeks in this whole gospel? They just sort of show up here. There's very little comment. Why are these Greeks here? Or they, they just sort of show up. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Where do these Greeks come from? Well, they come from Greece, obviously. But why are they here at this point in the gospel? I think this is the point. I think this would have just smacked any Jew in the face reading this for the first time. The point is that Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews. He's going to be the king over the whole world. And more than that, he is the savior of the world, as the Samaritans said back in John 4. He will draw not only Jews to himself, but Gentiles, Greeks, from the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's already beginning here in John 12. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And look, the Greeks are coming. This global mission, this cosmic work of atonement that is going to encompass peoples from the uttermost parts of the earth, it's starting right now. Here come the Greeks. The gospel will not go to the Jews only. It will go to the Greeks. It will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. What does Paul say at the beginning of Romans chapter 1? He talks about the gospel that is the power of God to salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What we have here in John 12 verse 20 is in essence the beginning of the rest of the New Testament and the beginning of the rest of church history. Look, the Greeks are coming. It's already happening. And that's why Jesus immediately says after this, verse 24, he says, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat fall to the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Not talking about a small handful of Jews here in the immediate vicinity. I'm talking about Greeks who are descending upon Jerusalem and people from the uttermost parts of the earth. In verse 32, he says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. That is to say, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, they will come to Jesus. This gospel is not going to stay here in Jerusalem very long. Five days I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, and people like these Greeks will come, be drawn to the Savior, and they too will believe. John is signaling to us that Jesus is not just the King of Israel. Maybe the best way we could say it is that the borders of Israel are just expanded to encompass the whole world. He is the king over all of Jews and also Greeks and indeed people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. In Jesus, the king, the son of David has come and his reign will extend beyond Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. But now the second major revelation in this passage. The king is here, the promised seed, the son of David has come. But now the more astounding revelation. And it's met with less excitement from the crowds. Secondly, the king must die. The king has come, and then it's revealed that the king must die. If Jesus is the king of Israel, and indeed the king of the world, he's not going to be the king in the way that these Jews and Greeks expect. He will not lead a revolution and establish an earthly kingdom. He will die on a cross on a hill called the skull for the salvation of sinners and a great cosmic act of atonement. If Jesus has been subtle up to this point about His plans to go to the cross and die so far in John's gospel, that all changes in John chapter 12. We've had a couple indications, right? In, I think it's John chapter 6, Jesus says He's the bread of life, and around verse 35, 36 or so, He says that uh, the bread that I give will be my flesh for the life of the world. 
What does that mean? I could read a couple of different things into that. Is he saying he's going to die? Is he saying something else? I'm not exactly sure. It's a little bit subtle, veiled. John chapter 10, Jesus is saying he's the good shepherd, speaking in a figure of speech, and he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay. What exactly is he talking about there? Could mean his death, could mean something else. Well, here in John chapter 12, there's no ambiguity, no lack of clarity about what Jesus means. He is going to die. It starts in the opening verses of chapter 12. That whole business about Mary anointing Jesus, why is that there? Why does that come after the raising of Lazarus and right before his triumphal entry? Now, I I think Mary has one particular understanding of what she's doing there. She takes the perfume, the, the, the jar of pure nard that apparently was worth 300 denarii, that's 300 days wages. I don't know, in today's money, maybe $40,000, $50,000, something like that. Maybe it's a family heirloom, and it's the most precious thing that Mary owns, and she brings it, and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. I'm not going to say much about that event, but there was one small comment made in one of the commentaries that I thought was precious, and it was just a, a quick little throwaway comment, and that is that the very least of Jesus deserves the very best of us. Uh, here she anoints His feet with the most expensive and valuable and precious thing that she has, this, this perfume valued at 300 days' uh, wages. And she anoints Jesus' feet, and I think our understanding of what Mary's doing there is that she sees this as an act of devotion and worship to Jesus. Like, I'm going to take this very precious and worthy thing, I'm going to pour it out on my Lord's feet and wash His feet with this very precious thing. It's an act of devotion and worship. But Jesus makes a different connection here. He immediately connects what she's doing to his death. He says, she has done this for my burial. The embalming process has begun six days prior to Jesus' death. She's doing this to worship Jesus. Jesus says, there's something deeper going on here. She has kept it for my burial. Very clearly signaling he's going to die. He's going to be Buried. Of course, we've already noted in verse 24, Jesus says to the Jews and Greeks who are looking on him, they've laid down their palm branches, he's come in in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and there he is before the crowds, and the Greeks have come, the whole world is going after him. What's the first thing Jesus says in this passage? Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. He's saying, your king is here, I've come, but like a grain of wheat falling to the ground, I must die that I might bear much fruit. And maybe the clearest thing Jesus says about his death is found in verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to himself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He said this to show, like He said this to manifest, reveal, make clear by what type of death he was going to die. I think, apparently, those looking on would understand when he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that meant he's going to go to the cross. I don't know exactly how they get at that meaning. It could be that that language was some sort of euphemism in those days. Like I might say to you that um, Ted Bundy, in payment for his crimes, got the chair. What do I mean? who was executed in an electric chair. But see, people 2,000 years from now may have no idea what I mean by that kind of a euphemism. That may be what's going on here. Could have been, what happened to that murderer, Barabbas? Well, he was lifted up from the earth. Like, you know what that means. Maybe that's how it was understood by these crowds. Regardless of what exactly we're to read into those words, there's no question the crowds understand him to be talking specifically about his death because they respond, verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Like, you say you're going to be lifted up from the earth? I thought you are the king of Israel. Isn't that why you're coming in on a donkey? And you're supposed to be lifted up? And we thought you were going to remain forever. Wasn't that the promise in 2 Samuel 7? 
That the son of David, his throne to be established forever, and here you say, you're going to be like a, a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, and you're going to be lifted up on a cross? Something's not computing here. And Jesus says the light's only going to be here a little while longer. Only for another five days or so. Then I will be lifted up. Oh yes, the king has come. But he is not here to meet their expectations for an earthly king. He has come to establish a different kind of kingdom and to rule as a different kind of king altogether. And nothing offends their understanding of this king and his kingdom more than his resolve to die on the cross. Like that's not what kings are supposed to do. Kings are supposed to conquer people and rule over them. That's why we've laid the palm branches on the floor. They don't give themselves up to the authorities to be killed. Kings are supposed to live in palaces and sit on thrones. They're not supposed to hang on a cross. Like kings don't die. Kings don't do that. Certainly not the promised king. He's supposed to remain forever. How can you say now that you're going to be lifted up from the earth and the light's going to go out of the world? It's only going to be here for a little while longer. How can you say that you're going to die if you are the king of Israel, indeed the king of the world? But this king will die. And why does it have to be that way? Why is it going to be that way? There are four answers I think we're given in these verses. And I'll just move through them very briefly. Four answers were given as to why the king must die. The first is this. Through his death, the king will be exalted. Like it's through his death, the king will be exalted. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's saying this hour that I've been talking about, this hour when I'm to go to the cross, this is the pathway to my glory. The idea is that it's the dying of the Son of Man. That is the route through which he will be exalted, through which he will be glorified. Like he says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, literally exalted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Christ's death and his exaltation are linked. His death becomes the pathway to his exaltation. The king will be exalted, he will be enthroned, and he will be enthroned through his death on the cross. And isn't it true, as we sing praise to God now, this side of the cross, as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, where is it that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shines most brilliantly? Well, it's not just in His sinless life. It's not just in His attributes. It's, it's through what He has done on the cross for our sins, and it's, it's there that's the focus. That's the focal point of His glory. The Son of Man will be glorified in His dying, through His dying, and it's through His death. This great act of atonement that leads to the rending of the curtain being torn in two and all the nations coming in, that He will be exalted among the peoples of the world. It's precisely through the cross that the King comes to the throne. Second reason we're given, through His death, the Father will be glorified. Through His death, the Father will be glorified. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is like this at all times, but especially as He approaches His death. He is fixated on accomplishing the will of His Father and bringing Him glory. Everything the Son does, He does to please Him. He does to glorify His Father. And He is recognizing that it is through the sending of the Son into the world, John 3.16, and a great mission of love, the giving up of the Son, that many will come to eternal life and will come into a relationship with God the Father, and thereby God the Father will be glorified. Third reason we're given, through his death, Satan will be defeated. 
Through his death, Satan will be defeated. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. If you read Revelation, you're a believer, you look forward to this great climactic silencing of Satan, vanquishing of Satan when he's locked up and he's behind bars and he is in the lake of fire forever. We look forward to this great and dramatic and climactic scene where Satan is defeated. But here in John 12, Jesus is now is the judgment of the world. There's a sense in which now the ruler of this world is being cast out. Genesis 3.15, what does Jesus say to the serpent? See to the woman's going to come, Satan's going to bruise his heel, and he will crush Satan's head. When does that happen? When did that happen? We're not waiting for that to happen. That happens at the cross. That's where that promise is fulfilled. Yeah, Satan is still out and about, and he's doing his worst, but he's on lockdown. He's been cast out. He's no longer the ruler of this world in that sense anymore. Jesus has come, and he now reigns over all. And Satan's empire is going to be shrinking and being closed in. Uh, Satan, in a sense, is like Adolf Hitler in the last couple of months of his life. He's still dropping bombs. He's still doing his worst, but the forces are closing in. His defeat is certain. The ruler of this age has been cast out. Victory is sure. Now, I don't say that. No Christian should ever be cavalier or, or lighthearted or unconcerned about the activity of Satan. Satan is stronger than you. He's not stronger than Christ, but he's stronger than you. And he still prowls around like a roaring lion. But this verse tells us that Christ is greater than Satan. The ruler of this world has been cast out. The king of Israel, the king of the world has come and he is greater than Satan. And it is through the cross that victory is assured. So we don't need to live in petrified sort of fear that Satan is going to overcome Jesus somehow. No, already Christ has had victory over Satan and has crushed his head. Now, at this hour, the ruler of this age will be cast out. Fourth and final reason that we're given in this passage. Through his death, sinners will be saved. Why must the king die? It's through his death that sinners will be saved. You can think of it this way. It's through the king's death that his kingdom will be populated. It's through his death that he'll have a kingdom. And people will be drawn into it. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's then. It's in the dying. It's in the atonement. It's in the cross. That is the means through which people will be drawn to Jesus in saving faith. It is through his death that Jesus will make a way for sinners from every nation to come to Him. Jesus' death was necessary to make a way of salvation not just for the Jews but for the people of the world also. The grain of wheat must fall to the earth and die that it may bear much fruit. So here are the, the crowds looking on. Jesus has triumphantly processed into Jerusalem. He's claimed to Himself the title King of Israel, King of the world, Son of David, Son of God. And then He tells them He's going to die. And the crowd is just, they can't embrace that. They can't understand that. Why must the king die? Why must the promised seed of David be lifted up from the earth? It's for this reason. And I want to end my exposition of the passage here. I have some application in a moment, but I want to end the exposition here. The reason for hundreds of years God preserved the line of David and the reason God's own Son was sent into the world in fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises, and the reason the king lived his sinless life and processed into Jerusalem in this way and rode on a donkey's colt over the palm branches, and the reason the king is going to go to the hill called the skull and die on a cross, bruised, beaten, bloody, and naked, is so that you could be saved. That's where we come in to the grand sweep of redemptive history. 
The king has come, and the king must die so that sinners like us can have salvation in Jesus and can become members of his kingdom. That's a sweet thought. That's a grand thought. Did the Jews understand when they first read 2 Samuel 7 that this is what God was going to do? That it was going to be through the son of David, the promised seed, the coming king, who would actually die. That it was going to be through him that Greeks would come, Samaritans would come, people from Spain would come, people from America would come, people from the west and from the east and from the uttermost parts of the earth. The king comes and the king dies for the salvation of his people. Now, there's one line of application for us that I want to trace here in particular, other than just simply basking in the glory of what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He's done in redemptive history for us. But there's a more specific point of application I want us to see. Someone in the, we have a prayer meeting at 845 downstairs, uh, we pray for this service, pray for you. And uh, someone prayed, Lord, give us action items coming out of this sermon for how to live. So here's an effort at answering that prayer and giving an action item. Here's the application. Jesus' death for our salvation becomes a pattern for our imitation. Jesus' death for our salvation becomes a pattern for our imitation. Look with me at verse 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying that about himself and his death. But notice what he does immediately in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Like there's a, a principle in his death that applies to people beyond himself. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the simple point in these verses. Jesus' death for our salvation becomes a pattern for our imitation. Like Jesus' death becomes a pattern for how we ought to live. So Jesus, the King of the world, will be like the grain of wheat that must fall to the earth and die so that it may bear much fruit. He dies so that fruit can be born. And apparently Jesus wants us to see in that, like in that dying in order to bear fruit, something of a paradigm for us and how we ought to live. Because he immediately goes on to say, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is, if you live in self-interest and self-love and give your effort and your time and your energy to making sure everything in life serves you, and if you live uh, for, for pleasure and for sin, you will lose your life in the long run. But if you hate your life, if you deny yourself, if you live for Christ and for others, if you die to your sins and your selfish desires, you will actually gain your life. Or Jesus says you will keep it for eternal life. Like there's a certain dying to self you must do in order to truly live, and we're to find inspiration for this in the death of our Savior. Like there's a principle established there that, that through death, life comes. And, and we in our lives sort of follow that pattern. We die to ourselves daily. We give up our lives daily. That it's actually in losing our lives that we keep it for eternal life. It's like you need to die in order to truly live. Or Jesus says you need to die in order to bear fruit. And then he says, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we, like Christ, pursue the root of humility and dying to self, we will be with Him 
and the Father will honor us in the long run. You see, the cross just sort of totally rewrites the playbook. It totally changes the rules. The logic is different in the Christian life. The first will be last. He who dies will live. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life will find it. Brothers and sisters, we follow a king who conquers through humility and love. And if you're going to follow him, you must be prepared to be like him. The kingdom of heaven is not for the proud and self-interested, the self-important and the self-promoting. The kingdom of Christ is not for fighters and brawlers and scrappers. It's for peacemakers. It's for the meek. It's for the lowly in heart. It's for the humble. It's for those who die daily to self. It's for those who take up their cross like Jesus and imitate His death in their lives. It's for those who are ready to embrace weakness. See, our King wins by losing. He lives by dying. He conquers through love, and He calls us to follow Him. We follow a king who rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. How can we who profess to follow him be more proud than he was? Our Savior did not despise the lowly root. He did not consider it below himself to humble himself. Our Savior did not demand his rights from the Jews around him. Instead, he gave up his rights so that he could lay down his life for others. The Lord Jesus did not wait to be served, but as we will see in John 13 when He washes His disciples' feet, He doesn't wait to be served. He gets busy serving Himself. Our Savior didn't call down a legion of angels on His prosecutors when He was in custody. Instead, He was silent like a sheep before its shearers. He wasn't settling scores from the cross. Rather, He was calling down the forgiveness of God upon those who had put Him there. Who could write a story like this? Who could dream up a Savior like this? Are there any prophets, poets, or mystics, or philosophers who could have established or foreseen this principle, that death is the pathway to life, that humility is the pathway to glory, that whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life? Well, this is the application for us in this passage. In Jesus' death for our salvation, let us find a pattern for our imitation. His death is meant to be a paradigm for how we live. So like boots on the ground. You're a parent, spouse. You're giving yourself for the family. You're working hard. You're doing your best. You feel like your work goes unnoticed. You have to do a long list of very humble tasks. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You hate your own life, that is, you give up your own rights, you sacrifice yourself selflessly for others, the Father will honor you. Like that's the way to find your life, to really have your life. It's those who see in Jesus a a pattern for how to live. It's, It's those who hate their lives, they will truly find it. You're serving in the church. You have lots of gifts. It seems like those gifts are never recognized. You just wish someone would really recognize the talent that you have. Well, listen, you have inspiration in the death of Jesus for how to live in such a situation. I don't need to be recognized. It wasn't below my Savior to go to the cross and die. He didn't demand that all the people around him recognize him for all the great things that he could do. He was humble. He went to the cross. He didn't demand his rights from other people. He didn't demand recognition from other people. It wasn't below himself to humble himself. You're the subject of unfair criticism. People have been gossiping about you, saying things that you know aren't true. or They don't interpret your actions or your words with charity, and you feel that you're a victim somehow. Listen, we have a pattern for how to endure such a situation. Jesus wasn't settling scores from the cross. Doesn't have to win the argument. We don't have to win the argument. 
We don't have to correct the record. We don't have to incessantly uh, seek our own vindication. We are equipped through the death of Jesus to hate our own lives and be willing to give them up, to be willing to be unjustly and unfairly criticized. We're able to imitate the very death of our Savior in the way that we live. I don't have to settle the score. I don't have to get in the last word with my spouse. I can, like Jesus, die to myself. I can follow my Savior, my King, who was humble enough to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, who was humble enough to go to the cross like a silent sheep before it shears. And rather than calling down judgment on His enemies, He calls down the forgiveness of God. In the death of our Savior for our salvation, we have a pattern for our imitation. And then just one final word of application. It's very brief and simple, and it's for those of you who are not believers, not followers of Jesus Christ. Hear this word from this passage, verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And this is the word for you this morning if you're outside of Christ. While you have the light, believe the light that you may become children of light. You have the light of the gospel right now. You might not have it 20 minutes from now. You might not have it ever again. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me, whoever follows me will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you embrace Jesus, the light of the world, as your Savior, as your Lord, turning from your sin in repentance, believing on Him in whole-souled commitment, devotion, faith to the Son of God, the Christ, you will be saved. Hear this word this morning. While you have the light, believe the light, walk in the light, the light is here this morning for you. And I call you to faith in the light, to belief in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together.